Well, good evening, brothers, sisters, and young people, and uh, good evening, particularly from Adelaide. We're pre-recording these talks because by the time you come to hear them on Saturday evening, your time, it'll be the early hours of Sunday morning, my time. I think 7.30 p.m. London time's about 6 a.m. in Adelaide, so I'll still be asleep. Uh, it's probably a better time of the day for internet broadband, being 6 in the morning for me, but... Uh, that even that wouldn't compensate for the other problems associated with me doing a talk at six in the morning. Well, brothers, sisters, young people, we've got uh, two very exciting characters ahead of us today. One male, one female. One from the aristocracy of Jewish society. The other, an outcast of Jewish society. One who thought he could come to the truth on his terms. And that perhaps in, a, in some way he had something to offer to the work of Jesus Christ. But the other who knew full well that were it not for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, she couldn't even live life, much less the truth. We're speaking, of course, of Nicodemus, the doctor of the Sanhedrin, and Mary Magdalene, of whom it's said more than once in Scripture, that out of her, the Lord Jesus Christ cast seven devils. And our first talk this evening is that on Nicodemus. We've just read John chapter 3, which is the introductory story of this remarkable man. And he is remarkable because, you see, at the end of it all, Nicodemus was basically an honest chap. At the end of it all, you could appeal to his better judgment that there was something in him which was fundamentally honest, and therefore he had what's required to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, personal honesty. From the very earliest days, you see, he was one that recognized the Lord as something special. When the ministry began, Nicodemus and a few around him, it appears, quickly realized that he was from God. The problem was Nicodemus as we mentioned a moment ago, wanted the truth on his terms. He knew very well what the prophets said about the coming of the Messiah. He knew very well that that spoke of the establishment of the kingdom of God. But it appears as though being a powerful member on the Sanhedrin, such as he was, he thought that he could blend the kingdom of God with the current religious system in Israel. And that if that was possible, I would surmise he could occupy a certain position in that hierarchy. As one of the most preeminent figures of Jewish society, there were going to be problems that Nicodemus had to overcome, personal problems, problems with pride that Nicodemus was going to have to overcome. And the thing is, he wasn't alone. There was a small group in the Sanhedrin who thought like Nicodemus and whose representative Nicodemus was. And so they got together and they decided that they needed to meet this new teacher. And they were going to send their preeminent representative, who would be Nicodemus. Now, what do you think the Lord thought about that? Well, we're told in Matthew chapter 10 what the Lord thought about that whole cast of thinking. Think not that I'm come to send peace on the earth. He says, I'm not come to send peace, but a sword. 
I'm not come to I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foe shall be they of his own household. You see, salvation's an individual thing. You're not saved even if your family's saved. You're not lost even if your family's lost. You're going to have to stand there on your own lot and answer for yourself. And all the structures around us won't help you in that day. They might help you get there, but we stand for ourselves. And they're going to send Nicodemus as their representative to meet this new teacher. Well, here he comes, John chapter 3 and verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. It tells us that he was a man of the Pharisees. And immediately that directs us back to the last verse of the previous chapter, because the first line of John chapter 3 says there was a man. Well, the last verse, John chapter 2, verse 25, says that Jesus needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man, you see. And the point is that John 3 doesn't cast Nicodemus in a good light in the opening words. There was a man of the Pharisees that came to Jesus, but in the previous chapter, Jesus knew exactly what man was like, and he didn't trust him. He didn't trust man or what man was made of. It tells us that Nicodemus has come to Jesus in verse 2 because of the miracles. The same came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Well, that's interesting because that also takes us back to the final words of John chapter 2. Look at John 2 verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So Nicodemus believes because he's seen the miracles. Well, no surprise, half the city believed because they saw the miracles. So verse 1 links us back to John 2.25. Verse 2 links us back to John 2, verse 23. And sandwiched between those two verses, John 2.23 and John 2.25, is verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, it says, and the important thing to observe in verse 24 is that the word commit is the same Greek word as the word believed of verse 23. So you see what it's saying. John 2 verse 23 says that all men believed in Jesus Christ when they saw his miracles. But Jesus, verse 24, did not believe in them. They all believe him, but he doesn't believe them. Why? Because, verse 25, he knew what man was like. He knew the fickleness of human nature. John 3, there was a man came from the Pharisees who believed because he'd seen the miracles. You see the point? And John 3, in its opening words, presents Nicodemus as just one of the great unwashed, bearing all the problems of humanity. 
though Nicodemus doesn't think that himself. That's certainly how the record opens when we're introduced to this remarkable man. Well, if the nation's belief in the Lord was fickle, in fact, so to agree was Nicodemus's. His story, in fact, would be a success story. But in these opening words, we're basically being told that Nicodemus has got a lot to learn. And he wouldn't be able to come to the truth on his terms. It was going to require an entire change of character. And that was going to be a difficult thing for him to come to terms with. This would take years for him to come to terms with. Because in many ways, compared with the publicans and sinners, he was running from behind because of the baggage of his position and the status which he held in society. We're told that his name was Nicodemus in verse 1 of John chapter 3. Nicodemus means, or it's actually comprised of two words, Nikos and Demas, victor of the people. Nike means victory, as the brand is. Demas means people. So he was a victor of the people. And his story would be a story of victory, as we've said, but only on a certain basis. And only based on certain personal changes. You see, the real story of the victory of Nicodemus would be the victory he had over himself. That would be the real story. And he was one of the Pharisees, verse 1 says. The word Pharisee means separate one. And the Apostle Paul in Acts 26 and verse 5 says that the Pharisees were the strictest sect of our religion. And so they were. And extremely powerful. This is the, the words of Brother Islip Collier in his book, Israel, Land and People of Destiny. And on page 54, he says it like this. During the difficult days that followed the return from Babylon, when the Jewish hold on the land was tenuous and any thought of idolatry had been knocked out of the Jewish mind, a sect arose which developed into the Pharisees. To them, a strict observance of the Torah was everything. They furthered the introduction of the synagogue, seeing it as the means of reducing the influence of the priests. By the first century AD, there were hundreds of synagogues in the city of Jerusalem. The Pharisees' grip on the minds of the people was almost complete. Yet there were unorthodox Jews, such as Sadducees, the Essenes, and others who resented the power of the Pharisees. And therefore, to increase their power over the people, the Pharisees extended the law, made traditions and additions, which became bur burdens grievous to be borne. And so you see, there was an enormous amount of politics in Israel in the first century. And the Pharisees, it appears, were winning the fight. They had the numbers. They had the control of the minds of the people. And even though they didn't control the priesthood or the Sanhedrin, they controlled the population by the synagogues that they had introduced and now controlled throughout the entire nation. This was the environment that Nicodemus was accustomed to, you see, part of a large, powerful, fiercely loyal legal group over, he, over whom he was extremely influential. How influential? Well, look at John chapter 3 and verse 10. The discussion between him and the Lord Jesus Christ progresses. And Jesus says to him in verse 10, Art thou a master of Israel? 
and know it's not these things. That is, don't you understand what I'm talking about when I say be born again? Art thou a master? Now, the, the significant thing about verse 10 is that in the Greek, it doesn't just say art thou a master of Israel. The article's there. Art thou the master of Israel? And the word master means doctor or teacher. You're the doctor, Jesus says. You're the professor. And you don't understand what I'm talking about? Really? He says. Now, let's just explore a little bit about what Jesus is really referring to here. You see, as far as the Jewish Sanhedrin were concerned, there were various positions of authority. At the very top was the president, of course, of the Sanhedrin, the Nazi, the prince or the elevated one. He represented the civil and religious interests of the Jewish nation before the Roman government abroad and before the Jewish congregations at home. He summed the votes. He determined tradition. He ran the Sanhedrin. Next down was the vice president, the Abathine, the father of the house of judgment. He led and he controlled discussions on disputed points. That was his job, to run the meeting. And under him was the Hakam, the wise one, the sage, the referee. And it was his job to formulate the arguments, to do the research, to do the Bible study, to put up all the relevant verses and to present the subject for discussion to the council. And in the early years of the Lord's ministry, that man was Nicodemus. That was the doctor. That was the master. That was the teacher, the hakam, the wise one on the Sanhedrin. He's number three. He's the third member of the Sanhedrin. It seems, by the way, he's a, a, a more mature age. Verse four, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can a man be born again when he's old? So it would appear as though Nicodemus is perhaps 60 or 70 years old when he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ in this chapter. It tells us what's more in John 19 and verse 39, after the crucifixion, that he brings very expensive spices to the tomb. So he was a wealthy man. No doubt his means accumulated throughout his long life. Well, it tells us. In verse 2 of John chapter 3, that he came to Jesus by night. And that's the problem. Three times Nicodemus appears personally in the record, all in the Gospel of John. Here in John chapter 3, verse 2. Next in John 7, verse 50. Finally in John 19, verse 39. And each time he's called he that came to Jesus by night. He that came to Jesus by night. He that came to Jesus by night. Jesus is later to say in John 3 verse 19, this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I mean, there's just no way of escaping the fact that verse 19 of John 3 is a reference to the fact that by having this discussion, Jesus and Nicodemus at night time and that Nicodemus has come at night time to avoid uncomfortable complications of coming during the daytime. Well, 
You know, there's only one other person in the Lord's ministry spoken of in the context of nighttime, and that's Judas. Because his deeds really were evil. In John 13, in verse 30, Judas, it says, having received the stock, went out, and it was night. But here's the interesting thing. Where did Judas go to? That night after the Last Supper, where did Judas go to? Well, of course, he went straight to the Sanhedrin, didn't he? Straight to the Sanhedrin. Where had Nicodemus come from? Well, directly from the Sanhedrin in John chapter 3. So it's almost as if the record in John presents these two men, men passing like ships in the night, one leaving the Sanhedrin, one going to the Sanhedrin, one leaving the truth, one coming to the truth, all, as it were, under the cover of darkness. We know, Nicodemus says in verse 2, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. And there's the point. He doesn't say, I know that thou art a teacher come from God. He says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. You see, he represents a secret following. In this great Sanhedrin, a secret following. Where do you think that secret following began, by the way? Well, I think it began about 18 years ago in the temple when the Lord Jesus Christ was a boy of 12 years old. And in Luke chapter 2 and verse 46, it says that after three days, his parents found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the masters, in the midst of the doctors. It's the same word in Luke 2 verse 46 as we read here in John 3 verse 10. He was sitting in the midst of the teachers, hearing them and asking them questions. And 18 years ago, it may well have been Nicodemus there. If he, as we say in verse four of this chapter, is an old man. He would have been there 18 years ago, meeting this young boy, hearing him and asking questions. And you can imagine all those years ago, he'd never seen anything like it in his life. Such a youngster with such profound knowledge, visibly impressed he'd be by that boy. And now he's meeting him face to face. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus in verse 3 of John chapter 3. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, where did that come from? Nicodemus hasn't even raised the subject of the kingdom of God. Hasn't even mentioned it. But of course, Jesus can see right through him. He knows what's in man. He can read Nicodemus like a book. He knows exactly what he's thinking. John, John the Baptist, in Matthew 3 and verse 2, introduced Jesus by saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus enters Jerusalem with a startling display of authority in John 2 verse 14, kicking over changes, uh, the money changers table as he enters the temple, creating a storm amongst the religious leaders. And so Nicodemus would be aware of all of these sorts of things. And he wants to talk about how this kingdom is going to be established, evidently. He thinks, I believe, that he could add something to that process. And Jesus looks right through him and says, ah, the kingdom's coming all right. 
That's what you want to talk about. I already know. That's what you want to talk about. Well, let me tell you, the kingdom's coming. But you don't have a clue what it's all about, Nicodemus. But I'll tell you this. Unless there are drastic changes in your life, you won't be there. You can't put a new patch on old garments. You can't put new wine in old bottles, Nicodemus. The old system of Jewish religion is going to have to go. It won't form a part of this kingdom. And the Lord introduces the discussion on exactly the theme that Nicodemus planned to raise before Nicodemus has even taken his shoes off. Well, Nicodemus controls his alarm. He's obviously been caught off guard by the Lord. And in verse 4, he says, oh, oh, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? <laughs> Purposely misunderstand. It's obviously a metaphorical birth that the Lord is speaking of in verse 3. And Nicodemus interpret, lit, interprets it literally. And by doing so, trivializes what the Lord has said in verse 3. You can see flesh talking in verse four. He's not trying very hard to understand what Jesus must be saying. And so he talks about a physical birth. But whilst he knows he's not trying too hard to stay with the spirit of verse three, Nicodemus is nevertheless giving somewhat of the typical answer of the Pharisees. Don't forget that to the Jews, your physical birth was everything. John 8 verse 33 we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. Matthew 3 verse 9, the words of John the Baptist. Think not to say within yourselves that we've got Abraham for our father. So you see, they had a major problem with physical birth and the status that they, that they occupied as a consequence of being the descendants of Abraham, the physical children of Abraham. Well, Jesus is patient. And in verse five, he, verse 5, he repeats the point. He says, look, verily, verily, truly, truly, Nicodemus, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water speaks of baptism. So a birth of water is baptism. And when he speaks here of birth of spirit, in fact, there are two births. The first is the inner change of disposition, the inner regeneration that's required as a consequence of understanding the principles of the truth. There's the first birth, and the second birth is obviously the physical rebirth into immortality. Unless those two births or two types of birth take place, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. Unless you forsake your old identity, Nicodemus, Nicodemus the ruler, Nicodemus the master, Nicodemus the doctor. Unless that goes in everything it means, you can't be in the kingdom. In fact, Jesus says, unless you forsake that, Nicodemus, you can't even comprehend the kingdom of God, much less be there. You'll notice that verse 5 says, unless you're reborn, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But that's not what it says in verse 3. And verse 3 says, except a man be born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the word see means to comprehend or to understand. Unless there's a regeneration, you won't even know 
what the kingdom of God's all about, Nicodemus. Well, of course, Nicodemus is completely confused by all of this. But Jesus has got one more thing to say. And in verse 14 of John chapter 3, he says it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life, he says. Now, this, of course, is a reference to the historical record of the serpent on the pole in Numbers chapter 21. And you remember the story that the nation of Israel back in Numbers 21 was about to enter the land with Moses or under Joshua eventually. And the people had complained at that time that there had been a lack of water. They hated the light bread that came down and rained upon them day after day and provided them with food and there was no water. So God sent fiery serpents because of their complaint and many of them died. And they came to Moses. Moses, they said, Moses, we're in, we're in a great strait. What are we going to do, Moses? We've sinned. Take away the serpents, Moses. And so Moses made a brazen serpent and he put it on a pole so that anybody who had been bitten by snakes could look upon that serpent and live. And though Israel didn't realize it at the time, that whole event was a parable which would be fulfilled by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have the parallels on the, on the screen. And you can read them yourselves. But the salient point of this parable is death by snake bite. And it's contained in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 56, as you can see it there. The sting of death is sin. That is the sting that brings death is sin. Sin results in death. And so the snake bite that they had contracted in Numbers 21 was simply a symbol of the nature they bore and the transgression that it led to and the death that would result. And that unless they observed the serpent on the pole and did so in faith, understanding the significance of what they were looking at, they could not survive. That was the story, you see. And that's what Jesus is alluding to. And Nicodemus, of course, would well know that verses 14 and 15 were a reference to Numbers chapter 21. But the most remarkable thing about Numbers 21 is this. In Leviticus 4 and in verse 13, it tells us that the whole congregation of Israel sinned through ignorance and the thing be hid from the assembly and they've broken the commandments of God which they have, when that sin becomes known, they shall offer one young bullock for the sin. You see that? The law made no mention of a serpent on a pole. Nowhere prior to this time had there been any hint that you should ever make a serpent and put it on a pole. There was, there was no provision in the law for a serpent on a pole. If the nation sinned, they had to offer a young bullock. What Moses did here was completely foreign to anything the nation had up until that point known. Because at the end of the day, it wouldn't be law that would save Israel. Salvation would come from outside the law. The serpent on a pole was not part of the Mosaic Code. Salvation came from outside the law. And so it would be in this case. 
And you can imagine Nicodemus hearing all of this. The Jews really never did understand the serpent on the pole. They thought the serpent on the pole was a symbol of forgiveness. They thought that when you looked upon the serpent on the pole, your eyes ascended to heaven and that it was a symbol of forgiveness, not a symbol of human nature impaled and crucified. They had no concept that they were looking at their own nature at all. And that unless they destroyed that nature, unless they mortified the deeds of the flesh, that it would eventually destroy them. They had no concept of that. And therefore, they never tried to do that. And so therefore, they had to be born again. The law would be of no use to them. They couldn't achieve salvation under the Mosaic system. Nicodemus, if he was to be saved, could not be saved as the third member of the Sanhedrin. That was the point. Everything had to change. Well, poor old Nicodemus. He thought he was going to come to the Lord and teach him something, or at least meet him as equals. He leaves the Lord's presence confused, upset, and completely humiliated. All the diplomas and degrees hanging on his wall hadn't helped him at all in this conversation. He'd been told about a new birth that he had to undergo, which he didn't really understand. He'd been given a prophecy about the Lord being lifted up, which he didn't really understand. And as he walked out the door, the last words of the Lord ringing in his ears as he scuttled off down the street on that dark night in Jerusalem, where men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I mean, those words would have rung in his ears until he got to his own doorstep, wouldn't they? Well, we know that the story of Nicodemus doesn't end here. This is just the beginning. Two and a half years roll by now. And the next episode is in John chapter 7. Turn with me to John 7. We meet Nicodemus again in the last words of John chapter 7. This is now six months before the crucifixion. We know that because John 7 verse 2 tells us it's the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, of course, was in the seventh month, six months out of phase with the Feast of Passover. And the next Passover would be the Lord's final Passover. So this is six months, therefore, before the crucifixion. But come across to verse 45 of John chapter 7. The religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular, are looking for one, some way to stop the Lord. The tension in Jerusalem is increasing and increasing. It's becoming very, very difficult. And so the Sanhedrin has called a meeting. The Jewish temple guard have been sent to the Lord Jesus Christ to arrest him. And it appears that the Sanhedrin wait at the meeting for the temple guard to return with the Lord in custody. And it tells us in verse 45, Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, that is, the Pharisees said to the officers, why have you not brought him? Then the officers answered, because never man spake like this man. And it's a breathtaking answer, you know. In fact, Brother John Carter in his book on John, I think, summarizes that verse, verse 46, the best. 
This is one of the strangest explanations for the failure to make an arrest put forward by the police of any age in any country. They didn't arrest him. Why? Because never man spake like this man. They were mesmerized by his eloquence and they failed to make the arrest. Well, the response from the Sanhedrin is automatically venomous. Verse 47. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived, they say? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Surely, verse 47, surely you officers of the Sanhedrin don't believe him. Verse 48, is there a Pharisee alive who believes him? Oh, a bold statement. A bold statement indeed. Verse 15, Nicodemus said unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, doth our Lord judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? So what's happened here? In verse 49, well, verse 47, 48, they've asked the officers if they believe. Verse 49, verse 49 the people, the people, he say, they say, who knoweth not the law are cursed. So officers, are you convinced by him? Is there a Pharisee alive that's convinced by him? Well, the common people are naturally convinced by him because they don't know the law. Nicodemus interrupts in verse 50, he that came to Jesus by night. Does our Lord judge a man before it hear him, he says? Nicodemus in verse 51 is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17. You shall not respect persons in judgment, but here the small as well as the great. Does our Lord judge a man before it hear him? Oh, he's nervous, but you can see this is the referee. This is the man who's got to form the arguments before the Sanhedrin. Can you see what he's saying in verse 51? You condemn the multitude for not knowing the law in verse 49. Yet you're prepared to ignore the law and have a man arrested and brought before you to trial without hearing him first. Now, that's the most elementary principle of justice, and you're prepared to overlook it. You see what the point is of what he's saying? What's the point in knowing the law if knowing it, you're prepared to violate it? You're no better than the people in verse 49 who you call cursed. So this is the power of, of Nicodemus's logic, and it is a very powerful logic, and it's a very practiced logic. And they can't answer Nicodemus. But the answer comes back. He's nailed his colors to the mast, really. And the answer comes back in verse 52. They answered and said to him, huh, Art thou also of Galilee, Nicodemus? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. No prophet ever came from Galilee. But that's remarkable. <laughs> you think about that. Who are they talking to here? Who are these Pharisees talking to when they make the statement of verse 52? They're talking to Nicodemus. They're talking to the third member of the Sanhedrin. They're talking to the doctor. And they spit this out in disgust in verse 52, which they would never do normally. So you can appreciate that Nicodemus is 
has obviously burned some bridges by the time we get to verse 52. He no longer commands the expect that evidently he once had. But even more than that, look what they say to him in verse 52. Search and look, they say. Search and look. Open your Bible, Nicodemus. Find a verse. You know, if anybody had searched and looked in the Bible, it was Nicodemus. You're very brave to tell him to search and look for a verse that you believe is not there. Because if anybody has searched and looked, it is him. He's the doctor. He's the master. He's the academic leader of the Sanhedrin. And he's just spent two and a half years searching and looking in his Bible like no man's ever searched and looked before. And I might add, if he had done that, he would have found that there were at least two prophets from Galilee. Jonah was from Gath-Hepha in Galilee, and Nahum was from Elkosh in Galilee. Search and look indeed. Has there ever been a prophet from Galilee? Yes. <laughs> the man who searched and looked might well have said, well, in fact, there were two. It's an interesting thing. And Nicodemus is forced now to confront where his real loyalties lie. And you know, it's the same for us. There comes a time when you're just going to have to stand up and be counted for the things of the truth. And that time might even be in the eclipses. If you cast your mind back to how the workforce has operated perhaps over the last 20 years. Humanism has increasingly made inroads. And now we have companies wanting to balance their demographics, wanting to balance between male and female, wanting to introduce diversity into the workplace. And because of these humanistic tendencies, I suppose, it's made our lives a little simpler in the respect that everybody's opinion now counts. And so religious persecution will be as bad as any other form of persecution. Well, there's no hope for the workplace. There's no hope for the world in that sense. The problem is that that humanism is now encroaching upon the ecclesias. And it's the same everywhere in the world. And there comes a time when you've got to stand for the principles of the truth in the ecclesia, like you once, once might have had to have stood for them in the workplace. So your child, for example, gets an invite to a birthday party. What are they going to do at the birthday party? What are they going to do karaoke? You might not go to that. But you're going to have to know why. And you're going to have to say why. And that means you're going to have to search and look and formulate your reasoning in a clear and concise manner. Your Sunday school teacher is going to invite the class over for the afternoon, what are they going to do? They're going to watch movies. You might not go to that. Your child might not go to that. But you're going to have to say why. And you see, one of the, one of the principles of humanism, and particularly the encroachment of humanism into the ecclesias, is that changes are wanting to be made for human reasons, not for divine reasons. And these changes often have very shallow scriptural arguments. Oh, we want to change because... We want to be united. Well, unity is certainly a biblical principle, but the unity the Bible talks about is a unity of the spirit, not just unity for the sake of unity. And so whatever changes we want to make in ecclesial life, we need to have a good biblical argument. We need to show that these things are an improvement. We need to show how they 
how they foster God manifestation, that God remains at the centre of our ecclesias. And we're not just pandering to human desire. These are the sorts of things that Nicodemus had to confront. He had to stand up for the principles of the truth. And he does in John chapter 7. But it's going to become far more serious than this. He's got to stand and be counted. He's got to step out of the shadows of darkness. And he's got to stand on the front foot and advocate for the things of the truth. And he's got to do that before his brethren. That's what's happening here. You know, the psalmist speaks of this sort of thing in Psalm 50. These things that has done, Psalm 50, verse 21. And I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such and one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set these things in order before thine eyes. If things arise in life and we say nothing, people might fairly and reasonably believe that we agree. And if we don't put our hand up and protest when principles of the truth are violated, people might fairly believe that we agree with the change. You've got to stand up and be counted. And all these things happen, be it in secular life or in ecclesial life, that those that are approved might be made manifest. Ezekiel 33, verse 6. If the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people are not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. If we don't put our hand up and protest changes that are harmful, that could see people leave the truth or compromise the principles of the truth. We might be questioned about that when we stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are in positions of leadership in our ecclesias, Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey them which have the rule over you, he says, speaking of the arranging brethren, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls so that they must give account. That they may do it with joy, not with grief. They will give account. They're responsible for the ecclesias they lead, and they will answer for that. And the point is, the very simple point is, what does the truth require? What do the principles of the truth say? Do what they say. We don't own the ecclesias. We can't live the truth on our own terms. There are biblical principles that are required to be lived in life. Nicodemus had to understand that. He had to stand aside from the crowd, even though there was a lot of pressure to conform. And he had to stand up for the principles of the truth. In this case, in John chapter 7, it was in regard to matters of judgment and fairness and equity. But it wouldn't matter. It was going to get far more difficult for the, than this for Nicodemus. He's going to have to stand up and be counted. And if he's going to stand alongside the Lord Jesus Christ, it might require him to break with others with whom he's had a lifetime a lifetime relationship. Well, Nicodemus is intimidated by the Sanhedrin in the end of John chapter 7. But the Lord won't let this rest. The whole record of John 7 through 10 is in fact one incident at the Feast of Tabernacles six months before the Lord's own crucifixion. And in John chapter 8 and verse 2, it's the next day. And early in the morning, the Lord's back in the temple once again. And so I believe was Nicodemus. 
You've got a reference in John chapter 8 and verse 13 to the Pharisees that are also back in the temple. You've got a reference in John 8 verse 22 to the Jews who are also back in the temple. Most often in the Gospel of John, when you read the word Jews, it's a reference to the Jewish leaders. So I believe the inference in John chapter 8 is that Nicodemus is there. Nicodemus hears the words that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks in the temple in John chapter 8. And look what he heard. John 8 verse 23. Jesus said unto them, You're from beneath. I am from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world, he says. Oh, that's precisely the words of John 3 and verse 3. Nicodemus. You've got to be born from above. You've got to be born again. Verse 24. I said therefore unto you, says Jesus, that you shall die in your sins. If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Wow, that's John chapter 3, verse 15. Whoso believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he. Well, there's no question. That's John 3 verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And you see, flooding back into Nicodemus's mind in John chapter 8 would be the discussion that he had that night in John chapter 3. Two and a half years ago, back in John chapter 3, where he knew he hadn't really stood up for what he believed. And he knew back in John 7 that previous day, he hadn't really done it as well as he could have done. Well, six months more go by, and it brings us to John chapter 12. We're now in the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The crucifixion's less than a week away. And in John chapter 12, these are Jesus' final words to Nicodemus. John 12 and verse 31. And Nicodemus is not mentioned in this record, but once again, he would be here. Jesus is in the temple. Again, John 12 and verse 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. This, he said, signifying what death he would die. He'd be a serpent on a pole. Then the people answered him, Well, we've heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. How sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The people don't understand. They can't comprehend the dead Messiah. They don't really understand what the Lord's talking about here. But Nicodemus has been thinking about these words for three years now. And now in John 12 and verse 31, verse 32, he's heard it for the third time that the Son of Man must be lifted up. He heard it in John 3 verse 14. He heard it in John 8 and verse 28. He hears it again in John 12, verse 32. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Who is the Son of Man? Well, he knows precisely who the Son of Man is. And I think by now he's beginning to twig to the significance of the serpent on the pole. But there's an issue you see in this chapter. 
Because in verse 42 of John chapter 12, it says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they be put out of the synagogue. Oh, if we line up behind the Lord Jesus Christ, we might be out of fellowship. We might find ourselves on the wrong side of our fellowship bases. And can you see the pressure on Nicodemus? Who do you think the Pharisees are that didn't confess unless they be put out? Who would be at the head of that queue, you suppose, in John 12 and verse 42? Well, poor old Nicodemus is in all sorts of trouble. Look at what Jesus thought about that attitude, verse 43. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's why they wouldn't break ranks. That's why they wouldn't stand aside. That's why they wouldn't stand first for the principles of the truth. And who more than Nicodemus? Number three, would that apply to? And Jesus cries out in verse 44. He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. If you don't line up behind me, then you haven't lined up behind God. And can you imagine, in the mind of Nicodemus, these arrows going in one after the other by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there. He was listening to this in the temple. So this is directed to him. He would see it. He would, he would understand what the Lord was doing. He would precisely understand what the Lord's saying. Verse 46. I'm come a light into the world. Whosoever believeth in me, on me should not abide in darkness. I mean, what would Nicodemus make of that? This, this public outburst by the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple. And you can see, you can see Nicodemus standing on one side of the temple, listening to the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the center. And he's darting in behind this pillar, behind that pillar, as, as these words come Straight to him from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the shadow, outside that shadow, trying to avoid the obvious application of these words to himself personally. A terrific contest in the mind of Nicodemus as the Lord speaks forth. And you know, as Jesus stood in the temple that day, he also spoke the words of Matthew 23. Eight Woes against the Pharisees. And Nicodemus would have heard that too. Matthew 23, verse 7. You love greetings in the marketplace. Rabbi, Rabbi. How many times had Nicodemus done that? Matthew 23, verse 10. Neither be called master. There is one master, even Christ. And here he is, the master of Israel. And he liked it, didn't he? Matthew 23, verse 13, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men and you won't be there yourselves either. And Jesus had precisely said that to him. Matthew 23, verse 16, blind guides, fools and blind. And he's been told that he loves darkness. Matthew 23, verse 33, ye serpents. Ye generation of vipers, Jesus calls them. Oh, and now it's clear, isn't it? It's clear now who's giving the people snake bite. Upon your head be the blood of all the prophets from Abel, Jesus says. Oh, and now he knows 
who he's associated with all his life. And I think somewhere in all of those words, the Lord Jesus Christ said, in the last few days of his mortal life, all the pieces fell into place. And it would have dawned on Nicodemus what the significance of that, that prophecy was of the serpent on the pole. That he'd been spent three years thinking about. That three times Jesus had mentioned that he had heard. And now he knew who the serpents were. The serpents were the Pharisees. And now he knew what the people were dying of. The leaven of the Pharisees. Hypocrisy. And there had to be a change of life. But there had to be a change of, of disposition if ever there was to be salvation. And in the last hours of Jesus' life, oh, sorry, in the last hours of the gospel record, the last hours of the Lord's life in John 19, and then the Lord's death, we meet him again. John 19, verse 38. Nicodemus probably saw the trial. Joseph of Arimathea, we read of in Luke 23, verse 51, not consenting unto the death of the Lord. Nicodemus was most probably there. The witnesses didn't agree. Well, who better to expose the disagreement of the witnesses than the referee? Nicodemus was probably there. But at the last, he knows what he has to do. And in John 19 and verse 38, it said, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, <laughs> besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pound weight. The secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. The midnight disciple, Nicodemus. And they team up together here and come and beg the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know something about this verse? Verse 39. It's not night time anymore. He was a disciple that came to Jesus by night, but it's not night time now. It's something like 4 p.m. in the afternoon. It's broad daylight. And here's Nicodemus, the master of Israel, the doctor of the law, who stood for everything the law stood for. Do you know what he's just done in John 19 and verse 39? The Passover will be starting in the next couple of hours. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the most important festival in the national calendar. And he's just touched a dead body. He's going to be unclean for seven days. He's just missed the entire Passover and the feast that followed. He's just missed it in touching that body in verse 39. Does he care? Doesn't care. Why doesn't he care? Because he's just found the true Passover lamb. That's why. He now sees the true place of the law of Moses. That salvation would come outside the law. That irrespective of the truth of, of the, the Mosaic Passover, he's just found the Messianic 
Passover. And before those Pharisees got hold of that body and flung it into Gehenna, he's got to retrieve it himself. That's the issue of John 19 and verse 39. So that in a remarkable fashion, a remarkable fashion, he understands the prophecy that Jesus made when they first met. But here's the interesting thing. Do you think in John chapter 3, when Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14, I must be lifted up. Do you think when Jesus said to him that the Son of Man must be lifted up, he knew he was talking to the man who would one day lift him down? Do you think Jesus knew that in John chapter 3? I think he did. Nicodemus didn't, but I think the Lord did. And at the last moment, Nicodemus finally changes. He sees the Lord lifted up. He sees the prophecy which he had now heard three times fulfilled. And out of the shadows he comes into the blazing light of day. No longer a disciple of darkness, but a fearless, shameless, emboldened, confident servant of God, walking away from the career of a lifetime, walking away from a considerable pension, forsaking his place in Jewish society and striding straight into the upper room as a founding member of the first century ecclesia. Such was Nicodemus. Such is his story. But you see, brothers and sisters, in a simple way, this has got to be the story of all of us. We've all got to leave those things to which we might have become accustomed and to perhaps which we might, might, might most naturally incline to and stand up in line behind the Lord Jesus Christ, crucifying the things of the flesh walking away from the things of this world and standing for the principles of the truth. This man finally did it, but it took a lot and it cost him a lot. But at the end of the day, the man that began as a disciple of darkness concluded as a disciple of light.